Welcome to SCOTUS Talk. I'm Amy Howe. Thanks for joining us. This week, we're starting a series of interviews on oral advocacy at the Supreme Court. Our first guest is Paul Smith of the Campaign Legal Center and Georgetown University Law Center. Paul has argued 21 cases before the Supreme Court, including such high-profile cases as Lawrence v. Texas, Gill v. Whitford, and Brown v. Entertainment Merchants Association. Thanks for joining us. Happy to be here, Amy. You argue both in the Supreme Court and in the lower courts. How is your approach to arguing at the Supreme Court different from arguing in the courts of appeals? Well, it, it's in some ways quite much quite the same. You, you learn, try to learn the case, try to anticipate the questions, uh, try to be ready with courts uh, and that sort of thing. There are differences, but they're really almost more substantive than than, than preparation. You, you know that the Supreme Court can do whatever it wants, uh, and it's less concerned about precedent than the lower courts are. I mean, they're not unconcerned about precedent, but they're more concerned about addressing a problem which is apparently significant enough for them to take the case and coming up with a rule that will work going forward. Uh, whereas in the lower courts, you do a lot of talking about Supreme Court precedent and how they're bound and why these facts ought to be covered by this case and that sort of thing. So you argued your first case in 1986. First Supreme Court case. First, Supre- first Supreme Court case. Right. Um, it was Warren Burger was the chief justice. It was. And Justice Scalia was not yet on the court. No. Has your approach to the oral argument at the Supreme Court changed over time? A a little, yeah. I mean, I would have to say uh, the court in 1986 in pre-Scalia days was quite different. Uh, You you could uh, talk for quite a while at the beginning of your argument. Uh, I remember when I clerked in 1980, 1981, the Solicitor General in those days would would give a two or three minute, four minute factual summary at the beginning before the first question. I mean, it was quite quite a remarkable difference. Uh, but you know, the uh, the the basic problems still came up. There have always been justices, in my experience even if they don't badger you, who know what the key question is. Uh, Justice Stevens, Justice Powell would get that question out. Uh, and so uh, you had to be just as ready. So tell us about your first oral argument at the Supreme Court in 1986. Well, I was pretty young, 31, for a Supreme Court argument. Uh, yeah. And um, I was really nervous. Mr. Smith, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. Our position in this case is a simple one. When Celotex moved for summary judgment, it relied solely on the state of the record as it then stood in the case. Such a motion is, we submit, perfectly appropriate where the record does... Don't sound it, by the way. But I was then. The, 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 the curious fact about that was I had really bad laryngitis, entirely psychosomatic, mm-hmm. for 24 hours before that argument. Uh, n- from nerves. Uh, my, you can't my, hear it my then all. spouse called the doctor and he said, Oh, just tell me you can't talk for 24 hours and cross your fingers. And, <laughs> and so I, I really wasn't speaking very loudly, uh, uh, but somehow or other it was enough so that the, the microphone picked it up. It's a pretty good microphone even then in the Supreme Court. Uh, but boy, was I nervous. Uh, and part of it was Justice Powell was still on the court. I had clerked for him mm-hmm. five, six years earlier, and I think it was the only time I ever argued in front of him. Uh, and so that's an added degree of pressure. Sure, sure. You want to do a sort of like the professional equivalent of like doing something for your, you know, one of your parents. Well, yes. And uh, he was a little like that. All the clerks were motivated constantly to try to please him and make sure he liked you because he was just that per- sort of a person that you were so re- in love with. 
Uh, the other thing, of course, at least for me in my first Supreme Court argument, is there were tons of relatives in the room and friends. It was like it has a kind of bar mitzvah quality sometimes, too. So walk us through your preparation in the, the weeks or the days leading up to an, an oral argument, typically. How many mood courts do you do? Mm-hmm. You know, do you, how do you practice answering questions, things like that? Okay, well, obviously, you, first thing you do is you sit down and reread all the briefs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then what I do, which may be a little different from other people, is I actually sit down and draft the text of an argument that I would give uh, in the hypothetical world in which there are no questions. Uh, and it's usually about two pages, single-spaced, not very long, you know, six, five or six paragraphs, basically the outlines of the argument you would give. And I work very hard on how to phrase that. Uh, and my theory is that if you really learn that document, then particular aspects of that argument will come out often in response to questions in the way that you wanted to phrase them. Um, the next step is to kind of try to think of the hard questions, write a few of them down, and then just start doing the moot courts. Moot courts are the most important thing you can do for oral argument in general and for Supreme Court oral argument in particular because you've got so many different justices coming at you. It, it, you really want to try to get a variety of people who could come up with as many possible questions as, as they can. And I always learn the case in a very uh, different way and wish I had written a different brief uh, during the moot court process. Sure, sure. Now, you've talked about how you, you write sort of your hypothetical argument if no one interrupted you. Do you then, do you write a separate opening statement? Well, that, that hypothetical draft has a paragraph at the beginning which constitutes what I would say, what I intend to say at the beginning of the argument, assuming I get my usual, uh, well, it used to be two minutes, then it was one minute, now it's about 30 seconds, I guess, you, you plan on uh, getting before the first question. Uh, Sometimes, of course, you don't get that either. We're going to play one of your opening statements from Crawford versus Marion County. Here's Paul Smith. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court, this case involves a law that directly burdens our most fundamental right, the right to vote. Those Indiana voters who lack the identification now required by the new photo ID law must overcome substantial practical and financial burdens before they can continue to exercise their constitutional right. Now, the state says that those burdens are justified by the need to stamp out the the scourge of voter impersonation fraud at the polls. But this court has made clear many times that such a justification should not just be accepted at face value, but instead it should be scrutinized to assure that the claimed state interest is both real and sufficiently weighty to justify the burden being imposed on constitutional rights. Before, before we get to that, uh, can, can we talk about standing a little? So this, this opening statement, memorize it? Yeah. I mean, I think the, the worst thing you can do is get up and start reading. I remember vividly in another case I argued a little bit before Crawford, uh, the Veith case, which is a big redistricting case, uh, one of my opponents got up representing the state of Pennsylvania and started reading his uh, opening paragraph. Uh, and Chief Justice Rehnquist just stopped him and said, are you reading? He was just absolute shock in his voice. And the poor guy never fully quite recovered. Of course, he won the case, or didn't, at least he didn't lose the case. But uh, uh, it is very important to memorize it and try to make it sound as natural as possible. <laughs> Do you have any sort of traditions, sort of things that you normally do on the day of the oral argument? You always have the same, you know, some people go to the Supreme Court cafeteria and have the same breakfast. 
every every argument day. Yeah, I'm not much of a ritual uh, fellow. I, I'm very antisocial. I, you know, I get up probably at four or five in the morning and just start pacing in my office. And uh, but I've been doing that by that time for 24 hours before that. The day before, I really don't want to see anybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there is a kind of almost visualization going on of sort of imagining questions, imagining me answering the questions, and I often in, in that 24-hour period come up with little turns of phrase which end up being in the newspaper the, the next day, that sort of thing. Interesting. Uh, so so that, is a, that is an important part of the process, but I think it really does feel almost like ath- athletes who visualize hitting the home run in the ninth inning kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And do you come up, does there come a point like the night before where you just try to turn your brain off, or are you sort of going until you go to bed the night before and then you get up and you... Keep thinking. Yeah, I'm not a good sort of let's let's watch a movie kind of guy the night before. I I just basically work until I'm tired enough to go to sleep. <laughs> I remember reading a story I think about Elena Kagan when she was the Solicitor General going to a movie the night before and thinking, really, wow, I'm impressed. Uh, I, I, could I, I could never, never have done that. Never, never, never. Do that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, me. Um, so. You're at the Supreme Court. What do you take up to the lectern? Some people don't take anything. Some people take huge binders of stuff. Are you? I have a thin binder. It would usually okay. be about three quarters of an inch binder, uh, and in it will be that drafted uh, text, uh, which is in some ways functions as outline for the argument because I'll have a little word next to each paragraph, sort of saying what that paragraph is, and in it I will usually also have um, some key excerpts from cases or key uh, documents from the record uh, with tabs, uh, just just things I anticipate that somebody might ask about that I might want to refer to. And I have to tell you, this is entirely a sort of crutch. I, I literally never look at it. Right. It just sits there in front of it's me, there. knowing it's there. Uh, and you can go see the one from uh, Lawrence v. Texas. It's in the uh, the museum right now. There's an exhibit on, on oh. gay civil rights history, and that's what they have in the Smithsonian collection, which has been loaned to the museum. It's the Lawrence binder. It has little stickies all over it and notes and scribbles and everything like that, all of which were part of the preparation. But And we're all sitting there, never looked at never, it. Never cracked, <laughs> cracked the binder. No, so it's open. Yeah, uh-huh, okay. But, but, but you don't have time to look down. Down. <laughs> all right, I'm actually going to play an excerpt from your from the, your oral argument in Lawrence versus Texas. Same right. I mean, you can put it that way, but society, oh, in a lot of its laws, makes these moral judgments. You can make it sound very puritanical, but, the, you know, the, the, laws, the laws against bigamy. I mean, who are you to tell me that I can't have more than one wife, you, you blue-nosed bigot? Uh, sure, you, you can make it sound that way, but these are laws dealing with public morality. They've always been on the book. Nobody has ever thought they're unconstitutional simply because there are moral perceptions behind them. Why is this different from bigamy? First of all, the first law that's appeared on the books in, in the states of this country that singles out only same-sex sodomy appeared in the 60s and 70s, and it did not it does not go way back, this kind of discrimination. Now, bigamy involves protection of an institution that the state creates for its own purposes, and there are all sorts of potential justifications about the need to protect the institution of marriage that are different in kind from the justifications that could be offered here involving merely uh, a criminal statute that says we're going to regulate these people's behaviors through, through the criminal law, which is where the, the, the most heightened form of, uh, of equal protection analysis ought to apply. This case is very much like McLaughlin, Your Honor, where you had a statute that said we're going to give an ex- especially heightened uh, 
penalty to cohabitation, but only when it involves a, a white person with a black person. That interracial cohabitation is different. And the state there made the argument, we're re merely regulating a particular form of conduct, uh, and that's a different form of conduct than, than intraracial cohabitation. And this, this court very clearly said, no, you're classifying people, it's not, and that, is, that classification has to be justified. When you have a colloquy like this, what do you do when you have someone like Justice Scalia whose vote you know probably isn't or definitely isn't in play, but they're still peppering you with questions? And, and you can't just say, well, I'm not, you know, you're not going to vote for me. I'm just going to sort of ignore you. How do you try to sort of satisfy them and move on? Well, I guess I would say two things about being questioned by your justices who are clearly not with you. One is I think you need to uh, understand that that's valuable. It can be valuable because it gives you the opportunity to rebut essentially an argument that's being made against you by that justice. The justices are talking to each other through you. And so if Justice Scalia is making some argument about why there's no right to uh, engage in sexual inter intimacy or something like that, he's trying to convince Justice Kennedy and you have an opportunity, because he has to let you answer the question, uh, to answer it and say, no, here's all the reasons why. So I think you have to look at that to, to some extent as, as an opportunity to get your points out. And now, of course, there, there comes a point where you want to move on. Uh, and uh, that's one of the tricks you learn over time. It doesn't always work, but I think the, the key is to try to take the answer you have to give, because uh, you always have to answer the question, and then tr transition very quickly to a somewhat related point that sounds like you're, you're not just stopping in the middle and moving on, but you're sort of moving to a point, more affirmative point you want to make. It's often also useful to turn and look at some other justice at that moment. Uh, okay. So it, you're not giving, encouraging a follow-up question mm -hmm. at that point. You, you're, you're sending a message, I have something else I want to say, and I want to say it to Justice X over here. Uh, and, you know, sometimes that works. <laughs> it seems like that's a real art form to sort yes. of take, take the lemons and, and try to make the lemonade out of them that the, the more experienced advocates are, are able to do, but it takes, takes practice. Yeah, I mean, I th I, I've always said there's two things that the most experienced Supreme Court advocates are good at. One of them is that. It's, it's taking uh, uh, aggressive justices and turning them into, as you say, lemonade. The other is understanding the limits of your case, the position that you have to take that, that, that is the one that you, you need to stick with and not be fluid on the basic central merits of your case. I've seen rookie lawyers get up there uh, and have one of the justices suggest an alternative rule that makes it sound like that justice is trying to help, and they'll just glom right onto that, and you, they end up in a world of hurt because it turns out that rule makes no sense, and then some other justice comes along and says, well, if you take that position, then everything you've ever said unravels, and it does happen. So mm -hmm. you've, got to, you've got to be willing to stick with the, with the, you know, the courage of your convictions, the position you've adopted in your briefs, and, not, and know what you can't give on. So the sort of the flip side of the hostile justice is what do you do when you have a scenario in which, you know, you know that your case likely hinges on the vote of a particular justice, say Justice Kennedy and partisan gerrymandering or something like that. You know, you're, you, you don't want to look like you're pandering to a particular justice because that's just going to annoy the other justice. So you just sort of make your argument as best you can and, you know, you know that that justice likely has particular things that will appeal to him or her. What, what do you do? 
by the time you get up to argument, I think you've decided about what degree of pandering you're going to do uh, in the brief and, you know, what cases you're going to cite and whether you put down Kennedy J and, <laughs> and, and that sort of thing. Um, in argument, I haven't really felt that I really want to try to focus on that swing justice. I think you're much more likely to be in, in play with people that are um, either trying to help you or trying to hurt you, and that, 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 that swing justice is very often not very busy and that doesn't really have a lot to say, mm-hmm. uh, but you hope it's listening. So, you know, I don't have a... I, 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 I tend to do my pandering in, in print. Okay. I like that. Um, have you ever had questions, notwithstanding you have multiple mood courts, that you just didn't anticipate? And what do you do then? Well, of course. Yeah. Anybody who tells you they haven't hasn't argued a lot of cases. Uh, the... There was a, several cases by just, uh, several questions by Justice Scalia in Lawrence, which I nobody in all the various moot courts I did in that case had to come up with about. One was about under our theory, uh, traditional rape laws would be unconstitutional because they only apply to heterosexual sex. What about rape laws, there 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 are rape laws that uh, that only apply to uh, to uh, 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 male female rape. That may be as well. I think, it seems you think to, that they're unconstitutional? That, I didn't su- suggest that they're unconstitutional. My point is that when a statute is limited to one particular group of people, particularly a minority of people in, in the state, th- that limitation itself has to be justified under equal protection, that that's a class. Oh, I mean, what you do is you hope that you come up with something sensible uh, and that your preparation, even if you didn't anticipate that question will allow you to construct an answer on the fly, and sometimes you can, and sometimes you can't, and sometimes a friendly justice will come along and help you out. <laughs> Fair. What do you do either if you've, you know, you're the petitioner and you've already argued and you're waiting for your rebuttal, or you're the respondent and you're sitting at, you're sitting down. Well, if you're the if you're respondent, the the, the thing you need to be figuring out in the, during the petitioner's argument uh, is where you're going to start. Uh, and whether you're going to vary it from what you tentatively planned. Because sometimes the most important thing to do and the most effective thing to do as a bottom side uh, oral advocate is to stand up and say, let me just start with that, that key point that you spent 10 minutes on, Justice X. Uh, and so that's you do need to be figuring that out. I don't take notes of any significance because you don't have time and somebody else can take the notes. You want to make a couple of notations on your document about points you want to make first, or maybe I might I sometimes renumber the points, things like that. Uh, but you have to be very, you know, clearly trying to make uh, changes on the fly of what, what your script is. Uh, the rebuttal piece is, is similar, trying to figure out whether or not um, there is a point that need that, to make in rebuttal. Uh, and so I guess it's, it, it's not really a different process. Uh, my sense over the years has been that rebuttal is seldom very effective. Uh, that I often ju- advocates wish they hadn't stood up at all, <laughs> <laughs> or the justices often have stopped listening. Uh, but you do have to make, make a plan. Last, what advice would you give to somebody who's arguing for the first time? Uh, well, I, I think it's really useful to go watch some. Uh, other people argue Supreme Court cases. I mean, oftentimes people come from out of town and they may have seen arguments in state courts or in the federal courts of appeals, uh, and those are useful, but it, there's nothing like actually seeing the justices in action, getting used to who they are and where they sit, uh, getting past that anxiety that you're going to call somebody uh, by a, a wrong name. I, I 
I actually don't use names very much, um, and I would certainly advise rookies not to just say your honor. Uh, but once you've seen and watched a few, then you really, really need somebody with more experience to be involved in the preparation. Uh, you know, a, a really good way to do that is to get a moot court here at Georgetown uh, where they have really, really good preparations. And But I would even do s- several moots with different experienced advocates if you can find them because I think you'll learn a great deal uh, and your instincts as, as a as a first timer are not necessarily good about what what to emphasize and how to do it. Paul Smith, thanks very much. It was a great pleasure. That's another episode of Scotus Talk. Thanks for joining us. Thanks to Case Text, our sponsor, and thanks to our production team, Katie Bart, Cal Goldie, and Edith Roberts.